Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We We are are magical magical fairy godmothers godmothers in in training. Today's stories are about magical wands and staffs and the worlds they travel in. We hope you enjoy them. My story is called The Keeper of the Edge. Fokashume began to dream about his death. Not that it would happen anytime soon, but the time has come to start making the necessary arrangements between this world and the next. It's important to mention that this dream didn't mean he would actually die. Nobody truly does. And Fokashume understood this better than most. He didn't fear death his own or anybody else's. And yet the thought of himself stepping into her threshold caused him to feel an unsettling sorrow, not for himself, but for the things which were not just things that he would have to leave behind. Some of his belongings he would keep, this was clear. Others he was still in process of negotiating the terms of departure. His home, of course, would remain behind. It had always belonged to the mountain, and Foka was a welcomed guest between its old and creaky walls. His fiddle and drum would stay too. The house and the mountain loved music, so in case a brave soul would come across his home after his passing, they were welcome to make music with them. Since his shape would have to be recognized in the other worlds and his wide-brimmed hat was part of that shape, it had already started to change and during the day it would turn misty thin at the edges, and the world he would see through those thin bits was the one he would soon be meeting. His boots would be coming too. They were also changing right on his feet. The worn out bits were gaining a new resilience and color, a deep hazy blue like thick stormy clouds. His pipe, he simply wouldn't part with, and he would refuse to die if he couldn't take it with him. He was known for his stubbornness. It was a boundary that no spirit could cross. So by sheer stubbornness and will alone, the pipe would be coming with him. It would be fair to say that Foka had a deeper relationship with his hat, boots, and pipe than he did with any living person. But then again, he did not have relationships with people, and it's how he liked to keep things. He was happiest far from all the comfortable things that people were drawn to. He was happiest at the edge of their world, on top of his mountain, keeping the winds from taking over the world below. He and his walking stick bravely facing the storms. Ah, his walking stick. This was the item still in negotiation. He loved his walking stick, maybe even more than his pipe, hat, or boots. The love that he held for this magical item and ally was like that of a friend or even a lover. He couldn't explain it, and he didn't have to. This feeling simply was, as were the conversations he would have with it during their walks through the storms. 
Beloved, he would whisper, this storm has nothing on us, does it? We stand fast. And they would, no matter how wild the snow and weather roamed. But his beloved walking stick, which never left his side as he wandered the mountains, showed no evidence of alteration or agreement to be coming with him. It seemed that it grew restless like he did, harder and harder to keep still. It moved around like a whirlwind before he would force it into the ground in his usual fashion, almost as if the ground was the last place it wanted to touch. This worried Foka. He didn't understand. They have always been together. He sat with his pipe and asked for visions and dreams to come, the kind that lifted through the smoke rings into the clouds, and the clouds would open themselves to answers, which were just out of his reach. One evening, the smoke opened the veils to a birch forest far, far away, and a hut that stood on chicken feet surrounded by skulls. Ah, Yaga, the great crone of the northern wood. This was serious. She only came at times of great turning and changes, and the winds she carried meant a destiny that would be reset, rearranged, or reborn. Whatever news she carried, they would become law and final petition. His beloved, his walking stick, was now in her hands. The smoke told him she would arrive at midnight tomorrow, which gave him enough time to prepare for her and find a fresh animal for her to eat. And the next night, at midnight, her wild winds descended at his home. Foka, my old friend, you have aged. Have you always looked this tired? She asked. She was in a better mood than usual, starting with small talk and smiling. Her sharp pointed teeth, like the palest silver, glistened beautifully against the night sky. Foka bowed his head as she entered the threshold of his home which settled and breathed against her presence, excited and frightened both by such an honorable guest. I have been old for a long time now. How long, I cannot say. But you are right, Yaga. I am indeed tired. Foka said thoughtfully and turned to the fire to put the rabbit he had for her on the coals. Don't cook it too long. I like my meat with some life left in it, Yaga requested as she took a seat near the fire and watched Foka intently. That's done enough, thank you. She ate the rabbit with beastly speed and licked her lips, her sharp eyes like knives, sharp like intention. As you already know, I am here about your walking stick, or what you call it, she said slowly. Foka nodded grimly and looked towards the corner where his beloved rested between the walls. Even now, it seemed to be so far from him, so different. The staff is meant to stay here after you cross and wants to be enlivened by a new master, a living one, Yaga said, while puffing fiercely on her pipe, which was carved out of birchwood with bird and snake designs circling around the top. She had always enjoyed Foka's tobacco blend, which carried the spice of Tatra Mountain Forest. A new edge keeper but I thought I was the last. I have held the edge for as long as I could all on my own. I was promised I would not have to train another like myself. Indeed, the spirit spoke the truth. You are the last of the edge keepers. The master that is to arrive is a weather rider, one who will not bend under the storm and will not stand against it. There are new currents that are coming here which are not meant to be held back. The mountain is ready. 
Tomorrow she will meet you here, do your best to behave and share all that you know. She, Foka stammered, always, always the edge keepers and mountain guardians have been men in these parts. This was very odd. Yes, I told you, you are the last of your kind, but before you go, you will teach her of this forest and the mountain, for she does not know their language yet. You must teach her the whistles the trees swing to and the calls that summon the winter storms. She will arrive at dawn tomorrow. Now, I am tired. Is the bed ready for me near the fire? She asked, and once again, Foka nodded slowly, knowing he had no choice in the matter. After Yaga had settled in for the night, he stayed up with his pipe, looking sadly at his walking stick in the corner, who would soon have a new companion, once so different from him. But that has already been decided, and he could not change it. In the morning, Yaga was gone, and he was awakened from his slumber by a sharp knock on the door. The weather rider was here. As quickly as he could, he walked through the cabin, not wanting to keep his guest waiting, for surely if Yaga sent her, she must be important and very powerful. The heavy door creaked loudly as he swung it open. Shocked, he stood and took in the small frame form of a child, no older than 13, that stood on the doorstep. Dressed simply in loose trousers, boots way too big for her, and a thick wool cloak. Good morning, Grandfather Foka, she said. My name is Vida. Grandmother Yaga sent me. May I come in? Confused and speechless, he motioned wildly for her to enter, and in doing so, he must have touched his walking stick, for it began to fall towards the ground. The girl, without thinking, reached with her hand towards it, and the staff flew into her palm effortlessly, not ever touching the ground. Vida handed the staff to him right away, smiling nervously. Forgive me, grandfather. I wanted you to introduce us first, but she must have sensed me here, and I didn't want her touching the ground. She? Yes, you didn't know? Foka thought for a moment, deeply recalling the voice of his walking stick that would soothe his thoughts on stormy nights. This quality of voice now registered as feminine, but was it always so? This was most unusual, all of this. His staff not wanting to come with him, the new currents coming and changing his mountain, and this child and her ability to wield what was his already. He took his walking stick from her sharply. I mean no respect to Yaga, but are you old enough to stand against these winds? I am much older than I look, like you and like Yaga, but I am the youngest of my kind. I promise I will be a good student and companion for you and these winds. I will make you and Yaga, and most importantly, this mountain, very proud. She said with a nod of her head, and then met his eyes, which most people and spirits have been known to fear. Welcome then, Vida. If you say so, I will teach you. I will introduce you to my mountain. It's hard to say how many days, months, or years this introduction took, and it was so much more than that. This girl was indeed an exquisite student, hardworking, quiet, determined, and the best of all qualities, fearless. She, without a doubt, was Foka's favorite person and the only person that he's ever cared about. 
this was something most unexpected, an opening of a place in Foca he didn't know existed, and he welcomed it, just as he welcomed his tiredness and old age, which softened him and tapered him to an even stronger anchor. Vida took care of Foca, cooked for him, which he welcomed dearly, for he always cared for himself and made simple, bland meals. The girl brought with her herbs and spices from Yaga's kitchen, which nourished him and changed him at the same time. Less and less, he seemed attached to his form, his size, or gravity. In the day, they would walk through the wooded hills and peaks the mountain offered. Foca would whistle and Vida would follow the tune. The sound more like a bird's song on her lips, hollow and high, but strong too. His low hum and hers together created a new melody that resounded over the mountaintops and enlivened the staff, which they took turns in holding. This was good, that the winds listened to Vida. They let her pass. They even lifted her feet off the ground at times, just like they did to Foca. They carried her. And the staff, his beloved, took a liking to the girl. And she was so changed under the girl's influence, so alive, so young. Her color changed even. The bark seemed fresh and she moved differently too, not touching the ground much, hovering like a bird in the wind. She would say to Foca, my beloved, I feel so free. I want you to feel free too. I want you to dance with the wind and not hold the edge of it like you've always done. Foca wasn't sure what she meant, but he listened, he observed, he watched the girl change with the staff, her own powers awakening, growing, summoning a different kind of current to sweep through the mountain. Perhaps one more dangerous than usual, but it suited her. It suited them both, Vida and the staff. Days, months, years went by this way and Foka grew more and more tired, the grip on a staff and the visible world loosening even more. One morning, great winds swept through the mountain winds from all directions, not just the one he knew. They whistled outside in a dozen of ripples that tore through the sky, competing for attention. Vida, unnerved by the sounds, was preparing food for Foca. Knowing her, she would have eaten already, and he was waking up later and later now, craving more sleep in his later years. What's this, he asked. Looks good, Vida. No journey should be met without a good sandwich, she said, and smiled sadly, which was a little unusual for her. She sat at the plate before him, poured him hot tea, and turned to sweep around the hearth. She knew the house liked things tidy before they would leave in the mornings. Foka watched her. To him, she was still just a child, small and frail with round cheeks reddened by the cold air hair disheveled and unruly, barely touching her shoulders. Listen to those winds. Sounds like more than just one mountain wind. Others have arrived too. It's been a long time since so many have gathered. Are you ready for this? This will be much wilder today than any other times. This is your true test, Vida, he said musingly while straightening his mustache. I am ready, grandfather. Are you? Foka, seeing the seriousness in her eyes, took some time to answer. This was no ordinary day, not for him anyway. He looked around the home, peeking in his surroundings slowly. 
his table, his rocking chair, the hearth, the dark wooden walls, all so familiar and so small. Have they always been this small, he wondered, feeling strangely uncomfortable under a roof which held him all these years. He looked at Vida, who was a young woman now, her chestnut hair long and braided down her back, her light blue eyes compassionate and sharp. She stood before him, dressed in her finest cloak, trimmed with rabbit fur. Her boots were tied tightly and secured high against her, her trousers. Let's go, child. I am ready, he finally replied and looked in the corner at his staff who stood alert and aware, anticipating his hand. Come, old friend, he said. One last time, we stand fast, Foka said with a chuckle, and the staff came to him in one quick swoop. Outside, the clouds danced so low that their faces were whipped as they roamed around them in a frenzy. Foka had a hard time standing against them, but he did his best, digging his boots into the familiar earth, becoming one with her gravity, calling on for her support through the staff which stood firmly with him, rooted into the ground. One last time, he thought. One last time, you and me facing these winds. Let's show the girl how it is done. Be good to her. Be good to my mountain, he thought. I will miss you with all of my being. His eyes watered in this wind. The water ran down his face like tears, but they were not tears, for Foka never cried. Vida stood fiercely beside him, her head tilted up, feeling the unruly clouds, unmoved and unafraid, her braid giving into them and dancing around her head like a serpent. They have come for you, grandfather. The winds, they call you. It is time that you become one of them, he heard Vida say, though her lips didn't move as she turned to him. Maybe it was the staff that spoke her voice like the sweetest song, the softest caress that entered his body like a mist and began lifting him and all of his stubbornness and his desire to stand fast, to be the edge, unmovable, while his love for the mountain growing even bigger than his body could contain. Vida didn't still these winds, she summoned them. She laughed through her tears and shouted, I will not stand against these winds, Grandfather Foka. I will dance with them and with you, as you are meant to be the wind of this mountain now and the guardian of the true edge, Grandfather Wind. With you, I will keep the mountain safe. With you, the world will be contained as I will ride the staff, which will forever be your beloved, but you must let go. Foka looked at his hand that held the staff, which now danced like a serpent braid of Vida. His hand was translucent, blue like the sky, and the staff was so small in it, like a wand or tiny branch, but so alive, so vibrant. He looked up at his hat that flew off his head, turned off by a fierce gust, and as he reached out to catch it, his form now rising above the trees and the hills and the mountain itself, majestic, unlimited, edgeless. He watched his world below, how beautifully it moved how sacred and perfect it was, and he oathed to keep it that way for all time. Now with the powers of the wind, he could do so, and he would not do it alone. Vida and his beloved staff whirled closely by, 
held by a whistle of the song of his mountain, a whistle that only he could summon. The end. Hmm, what a lovely transition story. <laughs> Wand story, wind story. Yeah. Thank you. And lovely to have even a brief glimpse of Baba Yaga. Yes, it was very lovely. Thank you. Yaga certainly wanted to make her appearance. <laughs> <laughs> and when she makes her demands, we listen. <laughs> Probably wise, yes. I loved the wind. And as always, it was amazingly beautiful. Your writing is always beautiful. Thank you. It was a fun one to write. It, like not all stories come fast. This one certainly came fast like the wind. How was it for you? What was your feeling going through it? Joy. It was really a joy to write and a settled fearlessness too. An openness to change and currents that are bigger than we are that do come. And who are we when we meet them? How do we meet them? What do we keep of ancient practice and how do we emerge anew with that practice or that memory of something that has worked for so long that now has to change too? I was really struck by the call to become something greater that all three of them, not Baba, but the, you know, Vida and and him and the staff are all becoming something, a greater version of themselves. Yes, that is certainly the, the big picture here is they all did, especially the staff. <laughs> the staff really wanted to fly and knew that it took a very special writer to make that happen. So they all came together in that way. And Foka would have never really been ready, truly. He's such a part of that mountain. Well, and still is. He'll forever be a part of that mountain. But he's earned, he's earned this. This is the next level. This is where you go from where he's been. I like to think of Baba Yaga coming at some point in the future and checking in on the new arrangement. <laughs> I'm sure she will. I'm sure she will. And I'm also very curious about Vida. We know very little about her other than she's fabulous. What was her life before? And what was Foka's life before? Was he ever a child? Did he ever arrive at that house? Maybe we'll find out. And Time is not linear, so. <laughs> and just when the story um, was saying the house liked to be tidy, you know, it was like, oh yeah, the house, staff knows what it wants, house knows what it wants. The house probably has a lot of stories to tell. Yes. The house has seen many guests, living and dead. Yeah. And does the house even make a distinction? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't. We'll have to ask the house. Maybe we'll need a, a magical houses story. <laughs> well, thank you. It was lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Betsy, do you have a story today? I do. Well, first of all, I want to just take a moment and thank Saga and acknowledge that Saga is not necessarily known for a staff, but she is known for a drinking horn or a goblet that 
undoubtedly stories and magical things are connected with. And in that vein, I think our story is connected with her. So I honor you, Saga, and I invite your presence, as always, to be with us. And my story is called The Star Wand. Landscape and all it contains is holy. My landscape is the landscape of my ancestors and of my gods. My family has a sacred grove, a sacred lake, a sacred valley. Every year, we take our many horses and ride through our traditional and sacred home, which includes vast grasslands and pastures. The grove is where we meet with our ancestors to bring happiness into our lives. Here we sacrifice, we commune, and we share food and ritual. Here we place clothing for the dead so they will be happy and content where they are and not cling to the living. We have great burial mounds, which we call kurgans, that are in their own city of the dead. This is the place of final burial where we go back to the bosom of the Mother Earth. It's a daily pleasure to be alive, to be under the sky on the earth between our sky father and our earth mother. This is life's pleasure. In death, we are with the mother. I was raised to be a priestess, a good daughter of my people and a warrior. This was foreseen at my birth. At my true naming at age seven, it was seen in more detail. The priestess who was an oracle saw me with a star wand which made my life much like its passage in the sky. My family thought this was a good thing. Of course it would be, but unusual for a girl child to hold the power of the sky. I thought it meant going in the circle of the sky as stars do yearly. This is what our people do, follow the sky paths, but on earth, riding our traditional nomadic rounds through our pasture lands. The priestess did not say much at my parents' rejoicing, but let them have their peace for as long as they could. She became my teacher, and she was always kind. My life was good. I was given horses and weapons and training from an early age. It was natural to ride and to be able to do many things at the same time. My girl cousin, my age, was my closest companion. We strove to outdo each other, but with love and good humor. We are the descendants of queens. It gives us an essential feeling of pride. We shared everything for a time. When I was 11, my grandmother asked me to ride with her and her retinue to the Kurgans. We were to meet my parents in the winter valleys later. My grandmother was preparing her own kurgan and wanted to see its progress. My cousin was not invited, and so here, for a short time, we parted ways. I rode with my grandmother, who was named after our goddess of the hearth fire, Tabitha. My name was a combination of her name, combining the name of the sky god, Papeus, with her name. I am Pa Tabitha, named in her honor and after our sky god. It was a privilege to go with her on this errand. On our way, we encountered many omens, but none greater than a falling star which came all the way to earth. 
Tabitha said it was a wandering star, and she said when we concluded our time at the Kurgans that we could ride for a few days and see if the star had landed anywhere near us. I look forward to this. I was itchy and sore for each evening Tabitha's lady tattooed snow leopards onto my chest and arms. They were magnificent, but it hurt to receive them, and the hemp I was given to chew made me drowsy. But I bounced back each morning. At the Kurgans, the priest who lived here as a guardian was attentive to grandmother. She was pleased, for her intentions and her specific directions were being carried out. Her supply of gold accumulated throughout her rather long life was a help in creating the death barrow she felt she needed. For us, gold comes and goes. It's a good thing for it to come out of the earth and shine under the sky and then to go back to the earth. It's only fitting that it's a gift for a lifetime only. Once Tabitha had given her next instructions to her overseeing priest, we rode out. My snow leopards were complete and antlered deer and birds were underway. We traveled for several days until we reached a place where grasses had recently burned. Tabitha pushed us straight into the burned region once we were able to feel that no trace of heat remained to plague our horses' feet. It had a strange feel to ride into the burn, not like other grassland fires which we had battled, avoided, or even started in the past. Grandmother's mouth grew tight while her body remained supple as always on her mount. I was the one to find the place where the star landed. It had created a bowl-like depression in the earth and it was still a little warm. I dismounted and walked until I found the center of the crater. Here was a piece of what had been molten star still cooling. I was fascinated by this star, thinking it must only be a piece of it. It had me in its thrall, or so my grandmother told me later, for I had to be pulled away from it as dark fell and the meal was waiting for me. I dreamt about that star. I relived its arrival into our sky and onto the land and onto our mother. I felt it was somehow mine. I tried to convey this to Tabitha, but broke off in confusion, for to put words to it was impossible. Somehow she understood. We waited until it cooled, and then we wrapped it in skins and tied it to our tent poles to drag behind us as we traveled to the winter valleys. It was phenomenally heavy, though no bigger than a deer. In the winter valley, our metalsmith investigated it. The master decided it was likely it could be melted down and forged into something. Divinations were done, and it was decided that an axe, a wand, and a crown of it were to be mine. The axe was first. It took a lot of charcoal to melt and to refine it. But the axe was amazing when it came out of the cooling waters. The wand was next, but it was made in several pieces. The shaft of the wand was first. Next, the smiths tried to make chain from it, but it resisted. It allowed a star to be made from it with six points and a chain from gold was made to connect the two. The crown was not to be, so a gold crown was made with birds which had eyes from the star stone. 
I dreamt that the rest of the stone wanted to travel on the bosom of the mother, and so I asked for other axes to be made for my tribe of brothers and sisters from all the regional mothers. When I appeared in my star regalia at the winter solstice, the chief priestess went into trance and cried out that a star had come among us and for a short life would be with us. We must love our star, she cried. We must love her. I knew what she said was truth, that my life would blaze like this star and be put to good use. I was content because I felt the truth of it. My mother was proud and she wept. I hugged her and said, my life may be short, but I will love every day of it. And so it was. I became a battle queen at 15. Tales of the star-clad warrior girl singing with her star wand before battle brought warriors from many parts of our land to fight with us, with me, to be part of the star myth. Each night, I sang with my wand under the stars and received my battle plans. We fought the Persians, and we won. And I spent the last of my starlight on that battlefield at age 22. I asked to be returned to the Kurgans of my people and to be with my grandmother, Tabitha, with my last breath. I knew my wand would be buried with me as well as my horses and my armor, my weapons and my gold as a gift to the mother. I also saw that my wand would live on with its star life and come into the hands of another whose life would be brief but brilliant. I am content with my life. I lived my purpose. And now I sleep. That's a delightful story. It's so beautifully written and told and really heart tender. It's beautiful and so full of magic and sacredness. Thank you. Thank you. How was it for you? Uh, you know, as with stories, I had the sense of the beginning. Uh, but when I sat down to start writing, it just came through all in one piece, all in one writing. And all in one story and it was lovely to write and lovely to be with her and lovely to be with the Kurgans and Tabitha. Yeah. You painted that world so beautifully. I, I really wanted to travel there and be with them too. Really touched me, her courage and her willingness to see the greatness of herself and, and that true exchange. One thing that was so striking in being with her was the incredible connection that she had to the landscape and also that life and death were not to be feared, but to be, all of it, to be loved. Yeah. That's the true secret of the universe, isn't there? <laughs> and a game changer. I felt that was very beautiful and I felt that was in both of yours. Do you agree? Was it just me? I felt like... No, it's never just you. I agree. I agree. Yes. Yes. Thank you for seeing that. I did feel like there's some similar essences and paths to our stories. Yes, I did as well. 
and how when these pieces of life and wonder and magic come to us, how they change us and how certain things are possible and certain things are necessary and how they flow if we embrace them. Absolutely. Yes. And where do staffs come from? If not from magical places, <laughs> whether from this realm or another. I think that what I take away from the stories is the stepping up to destiny. Yes, destiny and and change, necessity, grace. Serving something greater than oneself only. Yes. And the support that comes when that decision's made. I think the opening line in my story, landscape and all it contains is holy, also describes your story. My folk ashume story? Yeah. Right. It does. It does. I feel like that line really describes so much of our world at all times. That is true. Can you say it again? I want to like held in my, in my, in my heart. I love it so much. Landscape and all it contains is holy. Thank you. Well, to all the magical wands and magical staffs. To Saga, to the winds, and to our dear listeners. Thank you. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.